Good morning, everyone. Everyone awake? No, I don't think so. This is terrible. It's just because of that announcement that just went before. It's a little bit like, oh, and so everyone's like. But I'm excited to be here this morning, and I really sense that God wants to do something special in our midst and, and for you. And so let's just pray as we open up the word. God, I pray that you are speaking to each and every single one of us. There's no coincidence that people are here. There is no um, accident that people are here. You're wanting to speak to people, and you want to speak into their lives. You're wanting to bring life and life abundantly, as you have promised. And we pray that we receive every little ounce of that life that you have for us. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you love God, say amen. Okay, a few people love God. That's, a, that's an okay start. How many of you know what this is? A few people said Bible. <laughs> I hope that you understand what a Bible is. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, only a few people said that they love Jesus a few moments ago, so I can kind of understand that maybe he's like, okay, this is a Bible, and I'm holding a, what you might call a personal Bible. Um, this is for an individual to use. This is a devotional Bible. This is something that I can open up when I'm at home every single day of the week. I can read God's Word for me, um, and I can make notes on it. Many of you do. This is actually not my real personal one. This is one that, interestingly, I think someone donated to our church. I couldn't find the one that I used to preach with, which is a bit sad. But my one has stickers on it. <laughs> because I thought... <laughs> the stickers that I really like, it kind of talks about, uh, you know, Jesus, uh, uh, His love, and His kingdom come, and all that kind of stuff. We, we personalize our Bibles. I remember uh, my sister when she was, I think she was about to turn 18, and the gift that she wanted was a personalized study Bible, and so I got a few friends. Back then, Bibles were quite expensive. To get a study Bible was like, I don't know, uh, $60, $80, and then we, we pulled together, we also bought her one of those Bible covers uh, that, that she could put it in, and, and she was like stoked about it. That was something that was so like amazing that she could have this Bible and everything. But do you know that me even having a copy of a personalized Bible could get me killed 500 years ago? Literally, people died so that you can have a Bible in your hands, in your home, a Bible for yourself. This is something that I think we take for granted because uh, I, I know that our family owns something like eight Bibles. <laughs> we, we contribute to the Bible-producing society <laughs> uh, because we have different translations, and, and, and sometimes we take that for granted that we actually get to have a Bible in each and every single one of our hands. I think even Sam has like three different copies already in his young life. He has been accumulating these Bibles that we give to him because we want God's Word to be in his hands. But 500 years ago, that was not so. See, 500 years ago, there was a situation that was forming. There was a Reformation that many of us know about the Reformation. It was taking place. It started to create this sense that maybe some of the ways that the Catholic Church was running was not okay. And, and, and one of those ways was that the Catholic Church, at that point in time, said that there was only one accurate translation of the Bible that everyone uh, uh, should listen to. And that translation was known as the Latin Vulgate. The Latin Vulgate. 
The fact that most of us here don't even know about that is because none of us here are learned in the language of Latin. We might know a few Latin words that we use in our everyday life, but we don't know Latin. And even back then, and by the way, the Latin Vulgate was translated in 400 AD. 400 AD. They were still using that as the only translation of the Bible in 1500 AD. For 1100 years, this language that was already dying off was still used by the church as the only translation that was available to all of us. But another side point is that by 400 AD, there was already a compilation of what we call the Bible today. It's really soon after Jesus' death, 370 years later, there was already a full compilation of all the letters, all all the, all, all the different books that we call the Bible, which is amazing. But at the same time, they said that there was this translation only, this translation can be used, and so only a select few people in the Catholic Church could read the Latin Vulgate and were able to then preach from the Latin Vulgate, which happened to only be the priests. And so if you wanted to hear the Bible, you needed to go to Mass, and you needed to hear uh, uh, the preacher then uh, uh, talk about it. And I think that even today, there are some uh, churches, some traditions that would have the reading of the Latin Bible in, their, uh, in, in what you might call their services or their Masses, and, and, and people would, would sit there, listen to the Latin Vulgate, and go, wow, that was nice. It's a tradition, I guess. It's something that, that maybe feels like church, but do you understand a single word that was being said? Probably not. And so there was this uh, person after the Reformation who uh, came up, and this is what he said. This guy's name is Erasmus, and I got the quote coming up on the screens. And he said, The Son itself is not more common and open to all than the teaching of Christ. I utterly dissent from those who are unwilling that the sacred Scripture should be read by the unlearned, translated into their own vernacular tongue, as though Christ had taught such subtleties that they can scarcely be understood even by a few theologians, or as though the strength of the Christian religion consisted in men's ignorance of it. Now, it's a bit dense here. It took me about three readings, four readings before I understand what he was saying. Erasmus was basically putting forward this argument. The teachings of Christ should be more common than wherever the sun light reaches. First point, the sun reaches everyone. Everyone should have the teachings of Christ. And then he goes on to say that the sacred scriptures are only being kept by a few people who are able to read this ancient language. And he said, I love this last line, look at this. He said that you are making this argument that the strength of Christianity is consistent in people's ignorance of what Christ is teaching. It's like, how can you think that the strength of our faith comes from people's ignorance of what Christ has taught us? And so he was like, it's not okay that only a select few people, in fact, many priests had the ability to read the Latin Vulgate, but they still didn't understand it. It was ridiculous that the church had continued to say that there's only one way that you can hear Scripture being taught. And so, under the influence of Erasmus, we have this person, this hero of our faith. Now, there are many other people that helped to push this towards this stage, but William Tyndale, 
He might be someone that uh, some of you might have heard of or even heard of this publishing house, the Tyndale Publishing House. It is uh, a setup in remembrance of this guy who was uh, known to be one of the first translators of the English translation. He heard Erasmus's words, he was moved by it, and he started to do things to get ready. Now, I believe that God set this guy up to be the translator because he spoke seven languages fluently. Let me read this list to you. He spoke, he was fluent, not that he knew some of it, he was fluent in French, German, Greek, Hebrew, Italian, Latin, and Spanish. And you have to add to that English because he translated it in English. He knew all of these languages, he was a master linguist, and he read this and he went, the English people need the English language. And so, uh, the Bible in the English language. So, he actually petitions the Pope, and he writes to the Pope, and he says, Pope, can I please be given dispensation in order to uh, uh, translate the Bible into English? And the Pope said, no. Tyndale went, well, you know what? I'm still going to do it anyway. And this is what he said when he was uh, talking about this. He said, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life in many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the Scripture than thou. This is what he was saying. Pope, man, you've held the Bible long enough and you don't even know what it says. <laughs> and so I'm going to cause the, the local poor plow boy, which is, you know, like, I don't know how you say this without offending anyone, but the person who is like uh, the assistant to the assistant tradie, that person will know more of the Bible than the Pope. This is what Tyndale's heart was. I want to translate the Bible into a language that every single common person can have the Scriptures in their hands and can actually know more of Scripture than those who are supposed to be the guardians of the Scripture. This is what he said. And so he went about, he translated the scripture, and he started to, he actually had to leave England in order to translate the scriptures. He smuggled them into England. He was given up to the Pope by someone that he trusted and thought was a friend, but he was double-crossed, he was betrayed. This man was hanged, and then his body burned at the stake. Some people, some heroes of our faith, died that we can have these words in our hands. Now you tell me how many of you read this with that kind of reverence? How many of us understand that there is blood, firstly, Jesus' blood that was spilt so that we can understand the grace of God, but also people who in the past saw that these words are not just ordinary words, it's not just another book. This is the most scandalous book in the world. More scandalous than, than Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto. More, more scandalous than Fifty Shades of Grey. Remember when Fifty Shades of Grey came out and everyone's like, whoa, what's this? Now there are like 50 copies in the local op shop because everyone's read it and gone like, I don't need this anymore. Well, the Bible continues to be scandalous today. Why? Because it has life-altering, life-changing ability. Yeah. 
And this morning, my heart in talking about this topic in our Strong Heart series is to understand that one of the greatest tools, one of the greatest ways that God has given to us in order to have life and life abundantly are His very words. And we need to get stirred up about this. I want to give you some stats to consider. Recent research shows that, and this was all about teenagers, by the way, uh, because this is the research that I found, uh, um, but I think it's a, it's a picture of where things are going and what the home environment is like. Recent research shows that 43% of Aussie teens have a Bible in their homes, but only 3% says that they regularly engage with it. So these are all Aussie teens. Nearly half of our teenagers have a Bible accessible to them, but only 3% of them said that they will touch it and actually try to read it. 3% of the next generation are interacting with the words that people died to get to us. 3%. And then on top of that, amongst Christian teenagers, 47% of Christian teenagers say that they have never touched the Bible. Nearly half of people that say, I have a faith in God, don't know the words of God. They will only do what people were trying to avoid. They will go hear someone else talk about God, but they won't read the words of God for themselves. Tyndale died to reverse that situation, but somehow we have gone round, and half of our Christian teenagers will not touch the Word of God, unless maybe it's been read by Morgan Freeman. We're more interested in how the Bible entertains us than how it transforms us. Only 20%, one-fifth of our Christian teenagers, people who say that they have a faith, will regularly read the Bible. One-fifth. One-fifth. Why do you think that's the case? Well, what are the parents doing? What are the grandparents doing? What is the value of the Word of God in our culture and in our society today? I know these are sobering things, and honestly, as I was putting this together, I felt the grief of God. And I know I'm going to put this in a humorous way, but hear this. I heard a preacher say this recently, and this was a Pentecostal preacher, and he was saying, I have heard from the Lord. And we love that. We love when someone gets all prophetic and says, I have heard from the Lord. I've heard from the Lord, and this is what he says. I have written a book. Go read it. We want the now Word of God that has been chewed down and made so accessible to us that the Word of God that has endured for 2,000 years, half of them endured for six to more thousand years, we don't even read. We don't even open. We don't even touch. And when we read, we go, oh my gosh, this is so hard. I would rather watch 30-second YouTube shorts. I would rather go on TikTok and have someone else explain it to me. Jesus died. Tyndale died. And hundreds of other people died. There are people in this current world who are imprisoned for getting the Word of God that is in the vernacular tongue of that country. They are in prison, rotting away, because there is value in this church. And the value is not just in the fact that we've got words, but it's the power that is behind the words. Tyndale puts it this way. 
and I absolutely love it. He says, it is not enough to read and talk of the Bible only, but we must also desire God. Day and night, instantly to open our eyes and to make us understand and feel wherefore the Scripture was given. Hear this, that we may apply the medicine of Scripture, every man to his own source. Sometimes we're waiting for someone else to bring the healing to us. When God, with His words, there's transformation, there is healing, there's restoration in these words, there is the antidote to depression, there is the cure for anxiety, there is the, the victory over worry. There's power in these words, there's a medicine to our soul. And it's not the fact that we read these words as though it's some kind of magical incantation, but it is the fact that we desire the God who spoke these words. Imagine if I, had, I started dating Beck all those years ago, and she started to write me letters. And then I say, Beck, stop writing letters to me. I don't like reading. Just, just tell me what you want to say. And I was like, I've planned these things so that you can remember them when I'm not with you. It's like, no, my reading level is like year one, man. You know, like, I think Beck would go, put some effort into this relationship. Imagine every text that Beck sends to me. It's like, oh, man, can't you just leave me a voice memo? It's like, how hard is it to read a few words? We don't do that. To, well, maybe sometimes we do. But we do this as God. And he said that I've given you these words. Now, I want to point out something really, really important. And I hope so far, I, I know that so far it's probably been a bit of a, 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 an emotional plea. But I want to show you from Scripture why Scripture is so important. Ephesians 4, 17 to 24 says this. Now I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. Now, pause. Gentiles here is not an ethnic bunch of people. Paul here has been already writing about this, and Gentiles simply means people who are not following Jesus. So basically, there are two groups of people in Paul's writing in this particular scripture, he's saying that there are those who are following Christ, there are the people of God, they are the adopted family of God, and then there are the Gentiles, all right? So he says that you guys, you are the people of God, and you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, as those other people, because they have a futility in their minds. Now, I think that this is really interesting. Paul doesn't point out that the Gentiles in this kind of uh, uh, um, uh, uh, thinking, it's like, you must not walk in the ways that they do because they are evil in their behavior. Notice this. He doesn't argue that there are things that are doing that is wrong. His primary argument is that those who do not know Christ have got empty minds, barren minds, minds that are actually blank. That is his argument. We do not walk as they do because they do not think. 
I want you to see this. This is really important because in the Scripture, this happens time and time again. When we come in contact with God, it is a renewal of our minds that is taking place. We learn how to think different. We learn how to see different because God has taught us new ways to think. And so he says, Now I say this and testify in the Lord. Do not walk like the Gentiles do in the futility of the minds. And then he explains what is this futility in the minds. They are darkened in their understanding standing, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated, removed from the life of God because of not bad behavior, not sin, but it's ignorance that has removed them from God. Maybe if we are ignorant of the promises of God, we are alienated from the life of God. Maybe if we are ignorant of the, how God has explained His grace, we are actually removed from it. It is by knowing, it is an understanding what God has said that I can apply the grace of God to my life. And so he's saying the Gentiles, they don't know what God is saying, and therefore there's a futility in their minds, and they are alienated from the life of God. Now I ask you, every single person here, including myself, do you want the life of God coursing through your body? Why would you say no to the author of life saying, I can give you real and eternal life, more and better life? Yes, should be our response. Yes, should be everything within us. I need that kind of life, not this kind of broken life that is just decaying, but I want a life that is going to last eternally. And so Paul continues, they have become calloused and given themselves up to sensuality. And so it said they're the hardness of hearts. They don't know how to feel anymore. And so they go to extreme measures in order to feel. That's what sensuality is about. Extreme ways of doing things in order to feel stuff on the inside. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. You see, the truth is, I don't believe that people do evil things just because that's who they are. I don't believe any of us sin because we, that's just who we are. I believe that we sin because there's a part of us that think that the sin makes sense. But God is saying that sin doesn't make sense, not in my economy, not in my kingdom, not in my family. And then he explains to us why that sin doesn't make sense. Verse 20, but that is not the way you learn Christ. That's not the way that you learn Christ. Now, this is a really strange statement. Paul didn't say, but that is the way that you have learned about Christ. That's not the way that you've learned the characteristics of Christ. But he says, I have presented Christ to you, and you have had an encounter with Christ. But he uses the word learn. You see, our relationship with God isn't an emotional thing that we feel in a moment and it's gone. But rather, every encounter is an opportunity to learn Christ. And every opportunity is an opportunity to learn about His ways and how He conducts Himself. It's that knowledge that guards us against our ignorance, that guards us against the futility of our minds. Paul writes about this in other scriptures. 
But that is not the way that you've learned Christ, assuming that you heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. The truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on a new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. See, I believe that the life that God gives us doesn't look like anything that the world tells us. You might have a secure job, you might have a nice bank account. God says life doesn't consist in such things. You might have a nice relationship, you might have given yourself a sense of control, but in one moment, everything can fall apart. It's just three years ago when we were thinking that, you know, WA is going nice and strong, and then COVID hits, and everyone panics, and the whole world goes, falls apart. Who's got control now? And we started to blame Mark McGowan for all the control that he had, because you don't don't control my life. It's like, the truth is, none of us control life. None of us really know what's going to happen tomorrow. You might be well one day, you might have cancer tomorrow. You might have full faculty today, you might have a concussion and lose everything tomorrow. You could, you could invest all the money into something and think that you're doing so well, one day the banks are shut down and, and you might go, oh, it's not going to happen to me. All right. But what are you basing your hope on? Is your hope in something that is immovable? Something that is the same yesterday, today, and forever? Or is it in the changing whims of the market? See, truth is, we need to have better anchors. And Paul tells us that you learn Christ, and through learning Christ, you've understood that the old ways do not work. And you understand that it's only Christ's ways that work. And so you put on your old self, and you're taking on a new self. See, what Scripture does is that it helps us to understand the things that we are meant to let go of. It helps us to understand the things that are futile, that doesn't lead us into life and life abundantly. But when we understand truth, we need to do something about this. This is not just about reading empty words but it's about encountering God and having a new life in Him. Psalm 119 verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You feeling lost? Have you allowed Scripture to illuminate God's ways? See, one of the things I found out about why sometimes I don't like reading the Bible is that the Bible doesn't touch on the things that I wanted to touch on. Have you noticed that? Read the Bible, and the Bible tells us about something that we need to change. I was like, I'm actually okay with that, God. Is that thing that I want you to be dealing with? Anyone notice that? This week, I was reading my Bible, and I got into a fight with God. Because God told me in His Scripture, in Ephesians chapter 4, He says, Be completely humble and gentle. And I was like, no. (laughs) The word completely doesn't work for me. I don't understand how you expect me to live up to those standards. I'm going to fail, God. You've just given me instruction, and you've not told me how your grace is going to help me be completely humble. You haven't told me how this complete gentleness is supposed to look like. 
I'm dealing with a couple of situations and I don't want to be very gentle with people. It does that mean that I'm not living according to word and I was having this back and forth with God. And I started, as I was putting all this together, I started to realize I wanted God to shine his light over there when he was shining his light over here. And rather than concern myself with the things that I don't get, but God is not illuminating, I was supposed to look at this, I was supposed to look at my heart, I was supposed to meditate on this for the rest of the day, be completely. I read this on Tuesday, people. I'm still remembering this. No, in fact, I read that on Monday. I still remember on Sunday because it's a little phrase that I still don't like. Be completely humble and gentle. Completely. God, seriously? Completely. What does humility look like in this moment? I don't know. God, help me. But he was shining a light on something that was in my heart. He says, there's a callousness in your heart, Nate. You need to deal with that. See, we don't like reading the Bible, and when it challenges us, we kind of go, oh, I don't understand that. But if we understand that His Word is a light, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, and we read something that we don't understand or we don't like, God's actually showing us there's some old stuff that need to go. There's some new stuff that's about to bring life. So when we read something that Jesus says about how we are meant to be, we're not supposed to go, huh, I know better. How flippin' arrogant are we sometimes? We approach the Word of God and we kind of tell it, I think I know better. Really? Really? Maybe we all need to become completely humble and gentle. Maybe we need to understand that God is trying to do a deeper work in us. John 17, verse 17, final scripture for this morning Jesus was about to die on the cross and he was giving his prayer. And as part of his prayer, he prays to the Father and he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Your word is truth. The word sanctify is about us living and becoming more like the people that God has called us to be. It's a setting apart of our lives for God. You know, this week, one of my friends who um, has written a 20,000-word paper on discipleship and the process of discipleship, and he wanted me to just help him proofread it. I was reading this, and something occurred to me. So many authors that he was drawing from and one of the processes that we can see that we are becoming more mature in Christ, we start off wanting God to work for us. Maturity is when we get to a place where we're willing to give up everything for Christ. We start off at a place where we understand that God's grace is the best thing ever. That Jesus would be incarnated into the flesh would suffer on the cross and die and shed his blood for us, become the curse that we were meant to have. And we love that. Jesus, we love you. The process of discipleship starts there. It doesn't end there, people. We go through this process where we more and more understand that God has called us to give every single second and every single moment to him, every stray thought, 
every anxiety, every worry, every depression, every lie, we submit it to the truth of God's gospel, even if it means being a little bit uncomfortable or being very uncomfortable. That process is a process where we dive more into God's Word. Now, I'm a pastor, and I would love more people in our church to feel the call to this ministry. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that you should be seeing every single flippant moment of your life as being on mission for God. That's what maturity will do. And so I totally understand that when you open the Word of God and God begins to speak to you about surrender, you go, you push it aside. Now, some of you need to understand as well, and I needed to understand this too, part of that surrender is actually taking the time to read this book. Do you know that if you read the Bible for 12 minutes every single day, you would read the Bible in one year. 12 minutes. 12 minutes. Most of us have been Christians longer than a year, longer than three years, longer than five years, some of us longer than 10 years, and we haven't read every single word that is in God's book. And it would have taken us 12 minutes a day. Yeah, I get that there's weekends. Take two years. If you read every three to four days a week for 12 minutes, you would have covered this book some of us need to surrender our Facebook accounts, our Instagram accounts. Some of us need to surrender that Netflix account or that whatever you're watching. Some of us need to give up some habits on how we live, what we are consuming, and we need to get into the Word of God. That is part of your surrender. You know, we sing songs like Make Room, and we're going to sing that in a moment. I'm really trying to hit this up, and I'm saying this because I love you guys. I really do feel this. Sometimes when we sing like, shake up the ground of my tradition, break down the walls of my religion, and we're thinking, we follow Jesus, and we're like the hippies. The tradition is your self-love. It's your self-comfort. That's the things that we are fighting in today's culture. We need to break down what our culture tells us should be our traditions. Oh, I need to, I need to have time for myself. Yes, in moderation and all those things, we talked about rest a few weeks ago. But what I'm saying is that if the things of God doesn't capture us, if we don't desire God, we run the risk of going back 500 years, forgetting the blood that was shed in order to put this book into your hands, and you'll rather hear someone like me preach for 40 minutes and think that you've done your work in understanding the Word of God. 
There is a grief in my heart when I see those stats. There is a grief in my heart when I see how I have treated the Word of God myself. One final story. I thought I was being really clever this year. So at the end of the year, I, I set myself up to, to read the Bible through in, in the month of um, January. It's called the Bible Shred. And you read about two hours a day, and you will read through the Bible in, in one month. I thought, I'm going to do that, because then that's going to allow me to actually get into other study and all the other stuff. Sounds good, right? I went about four months after that, and I was feeling dry. Now, I've been leading this church for eight years, and I rarely feel dry. I've always feel like I've got something to say. I don't know if there's more about me or about God, <laughs> all right? I feel like I've got something to teach. I feel like God's put something on my heart. But this year, I felt dry. I was examining it. I was like, what's going on? And then God put on my heart, you haven't been in my word. And I was like, but I did that in January, God. I did that in Jan. In order to, so you can talk to me about other stuff. I did my Bible reading, God. And I felt God saying, well, I want you to get back into it. Literally, the next day, opened up the Word of God, and I was like, oh, I missed this. Is that actually really easy to step out of God's flow, out of God's life? Really easy for us to kind of go on our own path. And often we don't realize that we are actually living in death until we step back into life. So, And then a, a, a while later, last week actually, um, I, I had actually started a new habit of, of waking up about 20 minutes earlier than, than, than normal in order to read the Bible and to pray and all that kind of stuff. Um, but being early in the morning, I would use my phone and I would read the Bible on my phone and, and it's, I thought, you know, it's the way not to disrupt the rest of the family, turning on lights and all that stuff. And um, last week at our conference, our state conference, uh, a number of people said, we need to get back to the paper Bible. And they said, it's too easy to get distracted. And I was like, come on, I, I'm like 37 years old. Surely I have enough willpower not to go to, and I was like thinking about it, it's like, no, the 20 minutes I give myself, the first 10 minutes is catching up on everything else that's going on, and then 10 minutes of God. Why are you judging me? I read more Bible than that. <laughs> but I was like, what am I doing? And so I started to dig out my paper Bible, which I hadn't put aside for that long, but I went into it and said, <sighs> literally went two verses and God started to download stuff into my heart. You see, the sanctification process isn't isn't about these weepy moments where God suddenly like just changes your life. Quite often it's about the everyday moments where we choose life. And sometimes we won't feel a thing. There are days that you're going to read this and go, whoa, okay. Or maybe you're stuck in the book of numbers and you go, I don't like math. <laughs> and that's okay. But you're reading because this is God's book to you. God said, I've read, I've written a book, and go, go read it. 
And it's like, even those chapters? Yes. Because maybe five years, ten years of reading over those scriptures, maybe God can speak to you out of those words. I used to hate the book of Leviticus because it's so, like, weird. And after years of studying it, I'm like, the book of Leviticus is actually amazing. I used to hate the book of Ecclesiastes. Why? Because the author says everything is meaningless. Why would I like to read a book about someone that tells me that everything about life is meaningless? Until this year, God put a new lens on my eyes, and when I was reading Ecclesiastes, I'm like, this is absolute gold. Maybe this year you're going to read some of the Bible and it's not going to land. But if you keep persisting in it, you might know more than the Pope one day. But that not to brag, but it's the fact that there is life, sanctifiers in your word. And there's a change that is about to happen in your life as you stick fast to this. So some steps that I want to give to us as we close, if we can get the band up. Number one is start. Starting is harder than any other step. If you put off starting, you will never start. Starting is the hardest thing to do in the world when you're trying to do something different that you've never done before or that you have lost. The starting point takes the most energy. It takes the most willpower. But at the same time, once you're doing it, you've done it. So start tonight. Dig out that Bible. Most of you will have a paper Bible. If you don't, use the app. It's better than nothing. Read the Word. Go to Kurong this week. Go to someone else in this church that looks like they're a little bit holy and say, have you got a spare Bible? They probably do. Most of us do. Just get that Bible. Get into your hands. Read those words. Talk to someone else over morning tea. Find someone and say, I'm going to read three times this week at this time of the day, and I want you to check in on me. See, we don't do our faith by ourselves. The fact that only a few people had the Word of God meant that most of the body was starving. But the fact that the Word's available for all of us means that we can share and have potluck meals around the Word of God. What are you getting out of this? What are you getting out of this? This is where life is, church. This is where our hearts get soft towards God. And so this morning, before we leave, before we finish off, I want us to sing this song as our declaration. I will make room for you to do whatever you want to. Why? Because your way is better. Your way is better. If you don't get to that point of understanding that God's ways are better, you are going to struggle with the Word of God. The Word of God's going to tell you to do some stuff that especially in today's culture doesn't make sense, doesn't look good. But when we understand that I don't understand it because I am the lower being. I am not God. I don't understand how the world works. So you're asking me to be kind to my enemy? Okay, because your way is better than mine. You ask me to forgive when that person has hurt me? Okay, because your way is better. But you know what? Help me, God. Break down the grounds of my tradition. Break down the walls of my religion. Break down the things that stop me from living in your ways, God. Break down my pride. Help me be completely humble. Help me get to this place where nothing else 
Nothing else satisfies. If there isn't a fire in you, ask God to light it. If there isn't a passion in you for the things of God, say, God, whatever that guy has on stage, give me some of it. I need your power. I need your life. I need your grace. I'm done walking around this life as though I'm blind. So let's stand this morning, church. If you want prayer, if there's something that I've been saying here, you're going, man, I need something more. I don't know what it's going to take, but I need, I need, I need to get into the Word of God. I know that, but I don't know how to. I don't know what it's going to take. I keep slipping. I keep falling back. You know, the number of people I've heard that has told me, Pastor, I want to read the Bible, but I keep falling asleep. I think that there's a spiritual matter. Let's pray into that. The number of people that are saying, every time I read the Bible, it's like my mind just goes woozy. Well, you know what? Let's stop that today. Let's say, no, 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 the Word of God is life and it's intended for every single one of us to have it. There are promises in there that we need to read this week. There's instruction, there is correction, there is encouragement in the Word of God that we need this week. So if there's anything that is stopping you from getting into the Word, why don't you come down to the front and we're going to pray for you. We're going to believe in a breakthrough. But everyone else, let's make this commitment as a church. Let's make this commitment to make room for God to do whatever He wants to in our life. Thank you so much, Ben. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Live Church or on Facebook at Live Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.